Turn with me in your copy of God's Word this morning to the Gospel of Matthew. We'll be in Matthew 12. Matthew, if you're visiting with us or new or unfamiliar with the Scriptures, Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. In the back, probably two-thirds of your Bible. The Gospel of Matthew. Have you ever considered how odd it is as we've been going through these passages in Matthew 12 and hearing the interaction between the Pharisees and Jesus, have you ever considered how, how odd or strange it is if you really take a step back and listen to the words of the Pharisees, these ones who were the religious experts of the day, the religious leaders, the ones who had memorized the Scriptures and taught the Scriptures, They surely knew what it said, yet they were the ones going out speaking accusations, spreading lies, and slandering Jesus. All these things that they surely knew that the Scripture spoke to. They they would have known Exodus 20.16 where we read, You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. They would have known Leviticus 19.16 where the Lord said, you shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. They would have known Psalm 34, 13, where the word says, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. They would have known the wisdom that Solomon offered in Proverbs 6, verses 16 to 19, where he writes, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Interestingly enough, you can almost at every phrase of that proverb see the Pharisees. They would have known Proverbs eleven twelve. Whoever belittles his neighbor lacks sense, but a man of understanding remains silent. They would have surely known Proverbs twelve eighteen. There is one whose rash words are like a sword thrust, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. They would have known Proverbs sixteen twenty four. Gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. They surely knew. Proverbs 18.21, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Yet these men were speaking accusations of Christ. They were conspiring against Him in verse 14 of chapter 12, how to destroy Him. They were speaking words of slander and blasphemy. And lies against him. Why? Why would they speak such? Why would they say these things? Our passage today is Jesus' answer to that question. 33 to 37 of chapter 12 is Jesus' answer. And the answer in a nutshell is it's because their words reveal the true condition of their hearts. They, they may parade around in their religious garb. They may have great 
teaching, they may have memorized a lot of scripture, but the words of their mouth reveal the true condition of their hearts. Later in Matthew, we'll come to Matthew 23 through 25 through 28. And in this passage, Jesus sternly confronts the Pharisees for being clean on the outside, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. He says, outwardly, they appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Their words here are revealing their hearts. And that's the truth that we need to take from this passage today, the truth that the words of our mouth reveal the condition of our hearts. And I just want to say up front, as we think about this, and we think about speech and words, and we think about that our speech and our words reveal the condition of our heart, then we also need to apply that to the words of our fingers. The words that are typed, the words that are posted, texted, and emailed. It's not just verbal speech today. We need to understand that the words of our mouths that come forth from our mouth or come forth from our fingers reveal the condition of our hearts. Let's read the word of the Lord this morning, Matthew 12, beginning in verse 33. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you're evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Now, I, I kind of chuckled a few moments ago when I realized what I'd done. The, the passage I gave for Lynn to, to put up for our time of Scripture meditation just started out by saying, you brood of vipers. You know, and I was thinking, well, I guess everybody's already going, well, this is going to be a convicting sermon, evidently, right? It's just going to call us a bunch of brood of vipers as we sit in here. Well, we see, obviously, here contextually that Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees there. You brood of vipers, he says in verse 34. As we go into this text, we know that it follows what is preceded, right? Contextually, we have to keep what is going on in mind. We have to keep the dialogue between Jesus and the Pharisees that we have seen. We have to keep that in mind, the, the accusations, the conspiracy of the Pharisees, that they would blaspheme him and say that the work of the Lord, the chosen servant of God, is the work of Satan. And so now Jesus comes to this passage, and, and Matthew has placed it here to help us understand why it is that the speech is so important. It's because it's revealing of the heart. James Broadus noted in his commentary on Matthew, he says, Speech is indeed one of the grand distinctions of human beings and a mighty power for good or evil. Isn't that a, a beautiful thought, something to set our minds upon this morning, that speech is indeed one of the grand distinctions of human beings? In, intelligent language through the use of vocabulary is unique among mankind as image bearers of God. We understand that God has revealed himself. He's revealed himself through creation generally, but he's revealed himself through his word and through the Son specifically. He has revealed himself through 
language to man. And now man uses language to communicate. Some of you in here love language. You teach language. I don't know why you would do that, but you do, right? But we all use language. We all appreciate language, and we use it to communicate. But we use it for both good and evil, don't we? You can think of some of the most beautiful poetry, some of the most epic novels. You sit down, they just grip you. They, they, you just can't set them down. You just want to keep flipping the pages. Or you can think through letters, letters of the past that you would look and, and read. I don't know if you've ever written any, or read any of the letters that were written some, in uh, the Civil War or past wars where soldiers would write to their loved ones how beautiful they are. But you read all these letters, but you also understand that man uses communication to tear down, to spread discord, disunity, to harm. It is used for good. It is used for evil. And what Jesus does here in this passage is he adds weight and meaning to our words. Not, not merely in what they mean, but by showing us that they are a window to our soul. They're a window to who we are. The, the heart here does not refer to the seat of emotions. It's not referring to feeling. Like we would say our, our heart, a lot of time we, we think of heart and we think of feeling or emotion, that he has a lot of heart. He, he just got me right in the heart, made me just feel bad, you know? Well, heart is the center of the person, the will, who you are. And Jesus here is teaching us that our words are a window to our heart. They're a revealing of our soul. And so what he says here should really make us consider and think carefully about the words of our mouths. There's three truths we see here. Three truths I just want to point out from this passage. The first one is found in verse 33. Who we are is revealed by the fruit of our lives. Who we are is revealed by the fruit of our lives. We've hit on this truth earlier in Matthew 17. We read here in verse 33, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. There's the truth. The tree is known by its fruit. Now, when he says either, what does that tell us? It's one or the other. Right? There's, there's no middle ground. We, we talked about that last week, that there's no middle ground in following Christ. You either are a Christian or you're not a Christian. There's no in-between. And here he says, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. There's no in-between. You're either a good tree or a bad tree. It's one of the two. You either issue forth the fruit of righteousness or the fruit of the flesh. It's one of the two. The idea of a good tree producing bad fruit does not exist in the New Testament. That is not a biblical idea. It's not a biblical teaching that who you are in the core of your being would produce something different than what you truly are. It's the converse. The truth from Scripture is that who you are produces your actions and your words. They reveal, your actions and words reveal who you are. It echoes Jesus' teaching. You remember Matthew seven fifteen to 20, if you want to flip back there, you can, or you can just listen. But in the Sermon on the Mount, this is what Jesus said. He said, beware of false prophets. So he's warning, right, about false prophets. Well, how do we know? How do we know false prophets are there? He says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but are inwardly ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? 
So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. So we see the same thing here. He's warning about, about false prophets. And how do we know them? Well, we know them by their fruits. That's how we discern. It's how we know the truth about who someone is, what they're teaching. Well, here in Matthew 12, Jesus is doing the same thing. He's teaching us to look from the inside out, teaching us to see that our heart produces that which comes out of our mouths, that we are known by our fruit. The tree is known by its fruit. This is why he addresses the Pharisees as he does. He says, listen, the tree is known by its fruit. The fruit of your mouths reveals who you are. So how does he address them? You brood of vipers. Why? Because their words, their accusations, their lies, their blasphemy, their slander has revealed who they are. And so Jesus bluntly looks at them and says, you brood of vipers. You rotten trees. Right? Okay? So that's our first truth. Who we are is revealed by the fruit of our lives. The second truth is in verses 34 and 35. And it is this. There's a direct correlation between our heart and our words. Okay? That's the second truth. There's a direct correlation between our heart and our words. He, he asks the question there. How can you speak good when you're evil? How can you? It's talking about the ability. The, the word there is, is the, the word used talking about ability, the ability to do something, the power. It's rooted in the, the word of power, that you had the power to do something, do no miss. And it is rooted in that. It's the ability. How can you? How are you able, he says. How, how, are, you, how are you even able to speak good when you are evil? The evil heart is not able to speak what is consistently good and righteous. You just can't do it. Why? Because our heart produces our words. Our words have a direct correlation to our heart. Now, he, he tells us here, next, he says, for, right? So he's explaining his, how can you speak good when you're evil? For, so in explanation of this, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. It's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. The, the overabundance of the heart. This is, I think, most readily or easily observed in times of stress, isn't it? Is it times where something happens and your guard is down, you're not thinking about what you're saying, and you just say it. Right? Something comes upon you and it, it comes out. It's easy to, to impress and to woo people with our words when we're prepared, right? It's easy when we're thinking, okay, I'm in this context and I have to say these things or not say these things around these people, right? And so we can walk in, perhaps on a Sunday morning in here, and we can say all the right things. That's not really that hard to do, right? I mean, especially growing up, boy, I was an expert at that. I could say the right things. I could just make sure that I was very guarded, it's a lot more difficult, though, when the trials of life start pressing upon you. When the difficulties of life come upon you, it's really hard. And what's truly inside comes out of our mouths at that point. You may have heard the illustration before. If you have an orange 
and you squeeze orange, if I'm holding an orange and I just squeeze it, what comes out of it? Orange juice. It's not really not a trick question. Orange juice, right? You guys are like, orange juice. <laughs> I don't want to be wrong. You're not going to be wrong unless you have a different orange than I have, right? So when you have an orange and you squeeze it, orange juice comes out. Now, what Jesus is saying, how, how can you, who are evil, speak what is good, produce what is good? It's the same. What he's saying is, it's, if I take an orange, how can an orange, if I squeeze it, no matter how hard I squeeze it, it's not going to produce grape juice, right? It's just not. It, it can't do it. And he's saying the same thing. How can you who are evil produce what is good, right? We, we see that. And he says here, it's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. The, the, the overflow, the, the super abundance, you might ask or might say. Now, the question for us, the question that we, we do need to ask is if that's the case, if it's out of the abundance of my heart that my mouth speaks, then the logical question that we need to be asking is what is my heart filled with? And what am I bringing in? What am I filling my heart with? What type of desires and affections am I filling my heart with? What am I cultivating affections for? What am I dwelling upon? What am I thinking upon? What am I consuming? It is quite natural for ungodliness to flow out of hearts that are ungodly. Why would we expect anything else? Why would we be surprised that ungodliness, unrighteousness, wickedness would flow from our hearts if that's what is overflowing in them? So we need to consider, are we continually fueling our hearts with garbage, right? Are we continually bringing things in that when it flows out, we would rather people not know about it? Are we filling our hearts with the garbage of the internet and entertainment choices that we would blush before this body if people knew about them? What are we filling our hearts with? In verse 35, he describes both the good person and the evil person. He says the, the good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth what is evil? Well, our desires as believers should be to treasure up that which is holy and righteous and good, that we would dwell upon those things, those things that would, that would be holy, righteous, and good. They would, they would be worthy of honor and, and praise to the Lord. Don't you, believer, want that to be the overflow of your heart? Don't you want that to be what comes out when you're squeezed? When the trials of life come upon you, don't you want to be such that when the trials of life come and life squeezes you, that what pours forth from your mouth is things that exalt the Lord, that bring glory to Him, that magnify Him, that show trust in Him, that cries out to Him as your refuge because the overflow of your heart, even in the midst of the difficulty of life, makes you turn to Him because it's just who you are. You love Him. You long for Him. You desire Him. Well, how does that happen? How do we come to that place? How do we come to that point? I, I think Colossians 3 is instructive here. Colossians 3, 
verse 12 to 17 for your notes, Colossians 3, 12 to 17. I want you to hear this. I want you to note how much Paul refers to our hearts, the condition of our hearts, what it looks like, what is to be in our hearts. He has told us to put to death sin that wages in us and now put on godliness. It's the put off and put on passage for Paul. Put to death what is earthly in you. And he, he lists uh, evil, wicked, unrighteousness uh, deeds and, and, and habits and activities. But then in verse 12, he says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all of these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. We see there in verse 12, we're to have compassionate hearts, and He expands upon what that looks like. He, we see in verse 15 that we're to have the peace of Christ ruling in our hearts. In verse 16, the word of Christ is to dwell richly in us. And then later in verse 16, that we are to have thankfulness in our hearts. He's addressing our hearts. If that is what is going on in our hearts, specifically if the word of Christ dwells richly within us, if that is what is in us, then note specifically what he says in verse 16. What happens? Think about speech, what we're thinking today. Then all of a sudden he, he says that you should thus be teaching, admonishing one another in wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness. What's in our heart should affect what we speak, what we say. Godly hearts lead to godly speech. It's just the reality. Paul understood it. Jesus understood it. And I think sometimes and oftentimes and too many times we miss it. We miss it. What is the condition of our hearts? Our hearts are revealed by our words. The third truth today. Third truth is found in 12, 36, and 37. Is that our words reveal the condition then of our hearts. Our words reveal the condition of our hearts. Our words are not meaningless. They, they are not meaningless. They either show us to be justified or show us to be condemned. In verse 36, he says, I, I tell you, or some of your translations may say, but I say to you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. The, the Pharisees may have said, hey, it, <laughs> it's not a big deal. We were just joking. I mean, we we're just giving him a hard time. He's doing the work of Satan. <laughs> you know, it's, it's no big deal. I mean, you know, we we're just joking around. Well, the carelessness of their words could not cover up their hearts. Their words had meaning. Their ungodly motives were revealed by 
their words. And Jesus says in verse 37, he says, for, he's explaining again, right? He says that you're going to give account for every careless word you speak. And so for the third time in this passage, we see the word for in the explanation that Jesus is making. And the explanation is by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. Now, this is an interesting statement, right? Some of you, your ears just perked up and said, wait a minute, by your words, you'll be justified? I thought, I thought that we celebrate that we're justified by faith alone. Uh, isn't that what Paul wrote, that we're justified by faith alone? Like, yes, it is what Paul wrote. It's the teaching of the New Testament. We're, we're reminded here of a, a basic principle of interpreting or interpreting the Bible, of biblical hermeneutics. The basic principle is that Scripture is not going to contradict itself. God does not contradict himself. And so we understand because of that, that we encounter a difficult statement like this, and we just read it and go, oh, wait, by your words will be justified? Does that mean I'm declared right before God by just what I say, and that's it? Just if I say the right things and I'm declared right before God? Well, No. Because we understand this in the context of the immediate passage, right? This immediate passage in Matthew 12, but we also understand it in the greater context of the book of Matthew within the greater context of the whole of the canon of Scripture, the entire Bible. And we look at that, we look at the entire Bible, what do we understand? What do we see? What's taught time and time again, everywhere, every time, every angle? is that we're justified by faith alone. There's nothing that man can say or do to earn his salvation. We're not justified by our words as far as being declared righteous before God. Okay? And we understand even in the, the present context, that's not what's going on. If we, if we look in the present context, we see what? What is Jesus teaching? That our words do what? They reveal the condition of our heart. They show what's there. They're a window. It's kind of a, a, a peak. We open up and we see the window of what is in our heart. That's what our words do. They, they open the view so we can see what is there. They reveal. They show forth. So what we understand, what we know, if we just take this statement, we see contextually within what Jesus is teaching here to the Pharisees and the whole of Scripture where we do read that we are justified by faith alone. Galatians 2.16 and throughout Scripture, Romans 3.21-26 and, and Ephesians uh, chapter 2 and, and elsewhere, there's Scripture after Scripture after Scripture teaches us that we're justified by faith alone. All of Romans 4 is a demonstration example of that being the case. It's not by what Abraham did in Romans 4. It's the fact that he believed in God and that is why he was credited as righteous. He was declared just. And so here we understand contextually that the, that our words don't establish or declare us as just before God, but they reveal to others around us that we are justified before God. They reveal our standing. They re show us to be justified. Does that make sense? Are you tracking? They reveal, they show forth the condition of our heart. Essentially, it's the same exact thing that James does in James chapter 2, verses 14 to 16. That genuine faith will issue forth in works. And genuine faith will issue forth in godly speech. That's what it's showing. And so our words will show us to be justified in the end. Where does that leave us? It leaves us 
with the understanding that we need to examine our hearts. That we need to take an honest look, an honest examination of our hearts. Proverbs 27, 19 says this, As in water, face reflects face, so the heart of man reflects man. Now this is a, a beautiful illustration from Solomon, isn't it? That you've been there, you've been to the lake or you've been to the pool and look down and you, you look and you can see your reflection. Or you've seen the photographs where the photograph just looks like a mirror image, right? Because it's a perfect reflection of the scene behind it on the water. And he says that as water or in the water face reflects face, so the heart of man reflects man. We, we can play all kinds of games. We can put all kinds of fronts forward. We can wear religious masks. We can put up a good show. We can say the good things and say the right things when we sit in our Sunday school classes or when we're gathered in the foyer and we're afraid that somebody may listen in if we, if we say the wrong thing. We can do all that stuff. But in the end, what really matters is the condition of our hearts. What is the true condition of our heart? That reflects who we are. That shows, are we a believer? Are we genuinely, genuinely following Christ? And one way to examine that, one way to look at that reflection, so to speak, is to think about your speech. Is your speech characterized by cutting, harsh, slanderous, deceitful, inappropriate, damaging words? I'm not asking if you ever just sin and you know, slip up or something. We all do. We all do. James, James says, "Why well, who can bridle the tongue, right? In James 3, he says, listen, I mean, we bridle horses and rudders steer chips, but who is strong enough to control the tongue? We're, we're going to make a mistake. We're going to sin. But just like John deals with in his first letter, 1 John, do we go on habitually sinning? Or are our words characterized by those things? Do we constantly, if you really are honest, do you constantly find yourself slandering people, gossiping about people, responding in anger to people? trying to undermine people, bringing disunity. Now, don't, don't fall into the trap here of, of the good old if and but excuse. Don't, don't do that. Well, I only say that if. Well, I, I said that, but, but she... Don't do it. There's no room for but and if excuses. The reality is, the question is, what does our speech reveal about our hearts? What does it reveal? What does it show forth in our character? And we start peeling away the layers of the onion. We start looking in and opening the window of our soul by examining our words. Do they reveal that we're truly a believer? Or are we just kind of playing games? Saying the right things when we're here? saying whatever we want to and everything else when we're not. My friend, if that's you, that should be a red flag 
or the state of your heart, of whether you're truly a believer or not. The prayer of the believer is Psalm 1914. That we would go forth and we would say, Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The psalmist knew the connection of words and heart. Let the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O God. I, I know how easy it is to say something, right? And go, ah, oh, I shouldn't have said that. I understand that. And so the desire and the longing of the believer is that. That we understand how easy that is, how tempting it is, how, how, how weak we are in, in difficult moments. But when that's your prayer, what does that show forth? It shows what? A desire that your heart's longing is for the Lord, that your heart's longing is to exalt Him, that your heart's longing is to glorify Him, to grow in your love for Him, to edify and build up those around you. It's your, it's your longing. You want the meditation of your heart. You want the words of your mouth to be acceptable and pleasing to the Lord. But if, if you would be here and say, yeah, I'm more like the Pharisees. Like I know lots of Bible verses and I can quote them to you and I can tell you some right doctrine and I can point out false teachers. I can do all that. But if you want to really examine my words, they reveal an evil, wicked, depraved, sinful heart. Here's the good news. Is that God knows the heart. The good news is that Jesus came for the heart of man. The good news is that this passage is a reminder of the reason Jesus was sent and the reason Jesus came to die. It's a reminder of the life-giving, life-changing power of his resurrection from the grave. It's a reminder of the good news of the gospel. It's a reminder that God sees the heart, which is our true problem. Many of you have heard the, the statement that is so informative and so instructive to us to help us understand this. When, when, when God is looking for a king and he sends Samuel and Samuel's looking, which, who should I pick? God reminds him in 1 Samuel 16, 7, the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. God looks and sees the heart. That's good news. Ultimately, for some of you right now, it's like, that's creepy, that's weird, that doesn't feel like good news, that God would look and see my heart. Like, I can do all these things and look the part for everybody in here. I've got you snowed, Pastor. You think I'm great. You think I'm grand. You think I'm right there, but I'm not. Well, God knows. I may not know, but God knows. Why? Because I can only see, and see the outside deeds. I can hear what you speak, Right? God sees the heart. God looks upon the heart. But that's why Christ came. Christ came because man's heart is evil. It's dead in sin. It's bound in sin, bound by sin. And outside of a work of God in us, there's nothing we can do about it. We're going to bring forth evil out of our evil hearts. God knew that as he sent forth Christ. That's just what we do. It's what we do. We, we act out of who we are. If you need evidence of this, then just... Look through your social media. If you need evidence, go flip on the news. This isn't something that we need to debate today. It's very evident that those with evil hearts are bringing forth evil very naturally, right? 
It's why Jeremiah said that the heart is deceitful above all things. It's desperately sick. Who can understand it? But the next verse, Jeremiah 17.10, Jeremiah says, well, God says through Jeremiah, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Again, God sees the heart. He tests the heart. He examines the heart. He searches the heart. We'll see in Matthew 15, 19, that what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and that defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, Jesus will teach us. It's out of the heart. But Jesus didn't come just because the heart is sinful. But he came because with sinful hearts, there's nothing that we can do to change them. There's nothing we can do to change them on our own. We can't. I, I can't just change my heart on my own. It's the great dilemma that we face. It's what called Solomon. Solomon saw this. He saw the dilemma. He saw the fact that, that we can't change our own hearts. He understood that. We, we read all those things. We, we come to Solomon. We talked about the reflection and revealing the heart of man, that our, our heart reflects who the man is. And Solomon sees this. He, he knows the sinfulness of man. And he knows that man can't just change his heart. And so knowing that, Solomon asks in, in Proverbs 29, he says, who can say I've made my heart pure? I am clean from my sin. It's a rhetorical question. The answer is no one. No one can say my heart is pure. No one can say I've cleansed myself from my sin. I'm clean from sin. No one. No one in here can do that. There's nowhere in Scripture where we're taught that doing the right thing or saying the right words will cleanse our hearts or will save us. I think it's, I think it's worth noting what Jesus does not do in, here in Matthew 12. He, he knows what the Pharisees have said. He knows their scheming. He knows the lies. He knows the blasphemy. And he doesn't say, all right, you guys need to just change what you're saying and start saying the right things and that'll take care of everything. He doesn't say that. He doesn't instruct them to just change their speech so that their speech will then make them new. Because it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work where our speech filters down into our heart and gives us a new heart. It's the heart that produces our speech, right? So Jesus does not say, hey, start saying the right things. The reason he doesn't say that is because our actions and our words flow out of our hearts. And we can't change them on our own. We need God to change our hearts. But that's why there's such hope and beauty in the narrative of Scripture. That's the good news. That's the hope that was heard and found when Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 36, said this. God says, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. 
and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Isn't that beautiful? We, we can't change our hearts. But God says, I know, but I can't. And I will. I'm going to do heart surgery. I'm going to do a heart transplant. I'm going to take out that heart of stone and I'm going to put in a heart of flesh. And I'm going to put my spirit within you. And did you hear what flows out of that? What flows out of that at the end of what he said? In Ezekiel 36, verse 27. I will put my spirit within you and what's it going to cause you to do? It's going to cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Walking in righteousness, speaking in righteousness, flows out of a new heart given to us by God. It's what Scripture is called regeneration. New life given to dead hearts. It's why in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul says that all those who are in Christ are a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. Because God does that work in us. It's what Jesus talked about when he talked to Nicodemus. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. We need new hearts. If you're here and you peel back and open the window of your words and you see an evil, sinful, wicked heart, the answer is not saying different things. The answer is bowing before God Almighty, repenting of your sins and trusting in Christ. You know, in John 3, 3, he said that. Unless you're born again, you shall not see the kingdom of God. And later in John 3, what does he say? See, he talks about Moses. He says, Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man also be lifted up. Why? That whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. That's the great beauty and hope and good news of the gospel. It's not just that God said, you need a new heart. And unless you have a new heart, you're not going to see the kingdom of heaven. The good news is that God said that. And God sent Christ. So that anyone who believes in Christ would not perish but have eternal life. The heart and the words 
go hand in hand. They go hand in hand. Do you remember Romans 10, 9? Some of you know this verse. Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. You believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And he follows that up by explaining, for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. The heart and the mouth are tied together. What the heart believes, the mouth will confess. That's why I think it's dangerous and problematic. And I would take issue with someone who would say, oh, I'm a Christian. I just don't want people to know. I'm just not ready to say it in front of people. Romans 10.9 would say that's problematic. Because what the heart believes, the mouth confesses. So, unbeliever, would you trust Christ? Would you look to Him today knowing that you cannot change your heart, you cannot change who you are? Repent of your sins and place your trust and faith in Jesus, confessing with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, believing in your heart that God raised Him from the dead? Would you come to Him today in faith? It's not complicated. It's a matter of coming before God and acknowledging your sinfulness before Him. Repenting and turning from that. God, I am sinful. My words are sinful. My actions are sinful because my heart is sinful and I can't change it, God. Would you please change it? I confess that to you and I turn from that. I repent of it, God. Please Lord Jesus, I am trusting you in faith. You are Lord. It's an act of faith in Christ. Those of us in here that are believers, I think we need to come away from this passage and examine our words. Have we come to a place or have you come to a place where you just slipped into this pattern of filling your heart with ungodly things? Have you fallen into a place where so often the words you read, the songs you sing, the images you consume, they're not filling you with godliness. They're leading you away. They're filling you with worldliness. They're setting your mind and your heart upon things contrary to God. That affects us. That affects us. Have you seen that affect you specifically in the speech, the words that you say and the words you type? Don't, don't be the one who draws this imaginary line between, well, I didn't say that. I just typed it. <laughs> the one who is so bold to text or email or post something that they would never say. 
the one who destroys with the written word as though that's any better than destroying with the spoken word. If that's you, I would just call you to repent. Confess that to the Lord. To be reminded of the truth and the beauty of 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins to Him, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That's spoken to believers. That's spoken to me and to you who are brothers and sisters in Christ. So turn, confess, trust Christ and rest in His forgiveness and cleansing today. Let's pray.